Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious God, we have heard of the revelation and the revealing of your Son, Jesus Christ, to his disciples many times these past few weeks. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive his revealing to ourselves, that you would make him known to us, and that you would fill our hearts with himself. Guide us evermore to know you and to be near to you as you have drawn near to us. We ask this all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Here we are with a familiar passage this day. Many of these passages are familiar that we've been reading these last few weeks. The resurrection, the appearing of Jesus to the disciples, and then later on to the disciples and Thomas. And now here, at the end of the book of John, at the end of the gospel of St. John himself, he tells us yet one more story that we have become so familiar with. The story of the great catch of fish. It's not the first time we've heard of a great catch of fish in the gospels, but it has an importance here in the gospel of John, I think. It has an importance of revealing to us the work of Jesus for us. It reminds us that Jesus comes to us where we are. It reminds us that He is the one who is in control of heaven and earth. That He is in charge of even the sea itself, which is thought of as being under the earth in, in the cosmology we sometimes see described in Scripture. This organization of heaven and earth and the sea. That Jesus rules over it all through His resurrection. Through His being the Son of God made flesh. We also see that Jesus comes and feeds us, that he comes and meets us in that liminal place, that in-between place, that place where we know that things have been accomplished, but not quite knowing where we're going next. And in the midst of that liminal place, he will bring to us his forgiveness. He will bring to us his reconciliation, and he will bring to us restoration. He will apply His salvation to us when we're in between, when we're stuck, when we don't know what we're going to do next. And so thinking about that, that liminal place, we'll just simply start here in the Scripture and look at this passage and think about it. John relates to us that after this, his, one of his favorite terms in his Gospel, after this, just referencing that, well, this other thing happened and now this is something else that's happening. And it happened some other point after the previous thing we just talked about. We don't know when this is happening, except that it's happening within that 40-day time period. That period between the resurrection and the ascension. That Jesus revealed himself to his disciples once more. Some commentators have sat there and laid out all the appearances of Jesus and somehow organized them. And they say, well, this is probably the seventh time Jesus has appeared to his disciples. I find that interesting. Seven times now, Jesus has revealed himself multiple times throughout the day on the day of resurrection where he appeared to individuals. And now, appearing to all of them the night of the resurrection, and then eight days later, he appears to all of them again. And now, this other time, Jesus appears by the Sea of Tiberias, that is, the Sea of Galilee. He had told them, go to Galilee, and I will meet you there. They had seen him in Jerusalem resurrected, and he sends them back to Galilee, to wait for further visits from him, for further moments of encountering him after his resurrection. And so they go and they wait. 
And here they are, Simon Peter and Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana, the sons of Zebedee, and a couple of other disciples, John tells us. I don't think it's accidental here that while the disciples are in this liminal space, that John names them out in this order. Especially with Simon Peter coming first, and then Thomas. We'll find out a little bit more later about Simon Peter, but definitely with Thomas, the one who doubted so hard, who was stuck in unbelief even after his closest friends and allies, his closest companions were telling him that Jesus was raised. So it's not accidental that I think John makes it a point of pointing out Simon and Thomas at the top of the list here. And here they are. They're waiting to know what to do next. They're waiting to know where they are to go. And so they go back to Galilee. They go and rest by the sea. And then one day Peter says, well, I'm going to go fish. I'm going to go fishing. And the others say, well, we'll come with you. They're all, many of them were all fishermen. So they go out in the boat and they go to fish. So many people I've read or heard in the past were like, oh, here's a perfect example of disciples just being completely faithless once more. They're going back to their old jobs. They're not going out and doing the things they're supposed to do. But I, I think that's a misreading of the text. That it's reading too much into what's going on. They're simply waiting for Jesus to tell them the next thing to do. And so while they're waiting, they go back to their previous vocations. They go back to the previous calling they had received from God, which was fishermen. They are going about their work. They're going about their duty. They're going about doing the things that God had set before them previously. And they know that God is working through Jesus and that God is going to call them into further things. But thus far, he hasn't. Thus far, he has left them in the in-between. Thus far, he has left them waiting for him to reveal the next step of their work. And so while they're waiting... They go out to other work. And so I don't think it's an aspect of unbelief, but actually of belief. They've received the Holy Spirit. They have seen their Lord risen. This isn't a case of they don't know if the Lord is risen yet. They know He is risen, and so they're going out and simply waiting and doing that which has been set in front of them for the time being. There's nothing wrong with pursuing the work of our hands, the work right before us, while we're waiting for the Lord to lead and guide us. In fact, it is often in the midst of doing the very work he has given us that he reveals himself, that he opens us to recognize him more deeply, that he calls us more to himself. Unfortunately, that night, after they go out to pursue this vocation, pursue this work, they catch nothing. And then just as day was breaking in this liminal space, just as day was arriving, just as the sun was rising in the east, Jesus appears on the shore. But the disciples don't recognize him, and so he hollers out to them, Children, do you have any fish? Do you have anything to eat? Have you caught anything? Another way that that could be translated would be Jesus asking a question that is going to get a no answer. You don't happen to have any fish, do you? giving them a hint that he knows that they haven't caught anything. He knows that their night has been an utter failure. Their night has not accomplished anything. That's how the Greek is constructed with the assumption that the answer will be a no. But it's, it's weird to say that like that in English sometimes, and so we clean it up when we translate, and it's just simply, do you have any fish? And they're like, no, we don't. We caught nothing. Here, this man on the beach 
hollers out to them, knowing that they've been working all night, knowing they've been busy, and knows that they haven't caught anything. And so he calls out, well, why don't you cast your net on the right side of your boat? Give it one more shot and throw it out and you'll find some. And so they cast it out. And what happens? They haul in so many fish that they're barely able to do anything with them. They're so heavy. It was more than they could handle because there were so many fish. And in, chapter, in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved says, It's the Lord. I think that there's probably a little inkling in John's mind before this even happens because after all, he was at the Sea of Galilee once before. He was there in Luke 5 when Jesus had been preaching to the crowds and he had commandeered Peter's boat to speak to the crowd more easily. And he said, well, why don't we go catch some fish after he finished speaking to the crowds? And Peter says, Lord, we've been out all night doing that and we didn't catch anything. And James and John are there in their boat with them, working with Peter and Andrew. But Peter says, but if you want to go do that, sure. And they go out and they catch a load that almost breaks their nets. Once more, this happens. And we know the disciples aren't that dumb. We know that they're smart enough to step back and say, wait, wait, wait. And John immediately catches it. The disciple whom Jesus loved said, it is the Lord. That moment of inkling, that moment of we haven't caught anything in the midst of the night. And here's some guy on the shore yelling out, why don't you try doing it off the other side now in the day? That it would have begun clicking. And then as soon as all the fish came in, it fully clicked into place. This is the Lord. He has come to meet us once more. He has come to this in-between place to, to make himself known to us and to care for us and to reveal himself. It is the Lord. And Simon Peter, being who he is, jumps out and chases and swims to the sea, to the shore. Just as Jesus telling them and appearing on the shore to cast that net out isn't an accident. And John's way of telling all of these things, it's not an accident that this happens at daybreak. That it happens just as morning comes. And that that night, in the darkness, they caught nothing. John loves doing that with daylight and nighttime. Daylight is so often that time when God acts, that time when God makes himself known, that time when God reveals himself fully to make himself known, to work in his people. Earlier in the Gospel of John, you hear about Nicodemus coming at night, coming with some level of unbelief, coming to question Jesus. And Jesus makes himself known so that as Nicodemus leaves, he goes out in the day. Likewise, Judas betrays Jesus likewise at night. It is in the midst of the night that Judas leaves the disciples and goes to get the Roman authorities, goes to get the authorities to come and arrest Jesus in the garden. And Jesus says elsewhere in the gospel that the works of God are done during the day, but the night is coming when nothing can be done. That there's a juxtaposition between daytime and nighttime. And so I don't think it's an accident that the disciples went out once more to go fishing and that they caught nothing at night, that John is reminding us of this juxtaposition. That the Lord does his work in the daytime, so to speak. That as the Lord does his work, he sheds the daylight upon us. He sheds his glorious light onto us and opens our eyes in this place. 
And so they all rush back to the shore to meet Jesus. And they get there, and this is where Jesus comes to feed them. They're stuck in this liminal place. They're stuck waiting for a revelation from God. They're stuck waiting for this revealing and this direction. And Jesus is there ready to feed them, ready to help them break their fast from the Lord. As they have been awaiting him, and now he gives himself to them in their presence. He makes himself present and makes them breakfast. Literally, he has fish already out. He has bread over the fire. And then he reminds them, come and bring some of those other fish. And so they haul the net on shore, probably many of them having to drag it onto the shore because it's so full of large fish, 153 in all. But the net did not tear it. There's a supernatural event happening here, not just Jesus telling them to cast their net and catching fish, but here this huge catch doesn't even damage their nets. He is guarding them. He is protecting them. He is preparing them for their future. And then he feeds them. And in the midst of this feeding them, he brings forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration to especially Simon Peter. Again, John not being accidental in his description of things that are happening, we see it throughout. We see it in them fishing without catching anything at night. We see it in Jesus showing up at the daybreak. We see it in them catching all these fish after Jesus tells them to try one more time. And once more, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire. There's somewhere else that a charcoal fire gets mentioned. Only one other time is a charcoal fire mentioned in the Gospels, anywhere in Scripture. And that's at the betrayal of Peter. When Peter betrays Jesus, when G Peter denies Jesus there in the courtyard, he and the people in the courtyard are gathered around a charcoal fire. Peter is warming himself against the cold, and he denies Jesus three times. And I'm sure there's a bit of a psychological stopgap for Peter in this moment, knowing this terrible thing that he has done in the past, there near a charcoal fire, that seeing this charcoal fire may even awaken in him that dread, that recognition, that shame that he has done something against the Lord. And here this fire reminds him of that. But the beauty of it is, as we go on through 15 through 19, as we go on and read that later, go read it later today, you'll hear it's familiar about the Lord going to, taking Peter aside and speaking to him, bringing forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration to him. He feeds him, he cares for him, he shows his love for him, thereby that charcoal fire with breakfast, with rest, with recuperation. And then he takes Peter aside and speaks to him near that charcoal fire, where Peter is remembering his own betrayal, his own denials. And Peter questions him in this restorative moment of, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these, Peter? And all, each time Peter answers, yes, Lord, I do. Yes, Lord, I do. You know that I do. You know everything, Lord. You're the God of heaven and earth. You're the God of all creation. You know that I love you and you alone. And there in that restoration, the Lord commissions Peter to go out, to be the pastor of pastors, to be the pastor of God's people, to go and tend and feed the sheep over and over for the rest of his life, to be central in leading and guiding the church. The forgiveness and reconciliation of Jesus is made known to Peter that he might be restored fully 
out of this liminal place and be sent on to the next job, on to the next calling, on to his next vocation to love and serve the Lord in all that he does. Jesus comes directly to Peter there by that charcoal fire, transforming that old denial, transforming that scene of that fire in his mind to a fire of renewal, to a fire of restoration for Peter. And as all the disciples gather there by that charcoal fire, they get to see restoration. They get to, through the work of Jesus in Peter's life, know restoration themselves. For as Peter is restored and forgiven of the grave sin of denial, they know that they can be forgiven, that they can be reconciled and brought back into the presence of the Father and thus restored and sent forward into new life. And it is all because Jesus came and revealed himself and fed them and cared for them. Here, this third time in John's Gospel. And he is sending them out to accomplish his goals, to send them out into this world to tend the sheep of God, to feed the sheep of God, to bring the sheep of God near to the Lord, that they might know him more deeply. And that's what the Lord is doing for each and every one of us this day. He is drawing near here in this worship service now as we gather together as the corporate people of God, not merely as individuals, but as the people of God, as the body of Christ. He is here in our midst. Jesus is in our midst because he has promised that he would be. And when Jesus makes a promise, he keeps it. And so we can rest in the assurance that he is here because he has promised to be so. And if he is here, then he will reveal himself. He is making himself known through his word and through his sacrament to you to bring you his forgiveness. And with forgiveness comes reconciliation, comes the healing of relationship. And through that reconciliation will come that great restoration to a greater relationship. It is a process. We do it every day with other people in our lives. We extend forgiveness, and when that forgiveness is received, reconciliation can, be begin, can begin. Trust can be rebuilt. And out of that rebuilt trust can come new restoration, can come a new kind of relationship. It doesn't always happen because we are fallen people. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes our extended forgiveness is refused, and thus reconciliation can never happen. Or the sin is so grave that for us, in our own power, it's impossible to move past forgiveness for years and years and years. And that's okay. It will work out at the end. We ever strive to recognize our need from the Lord in the midst of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. But with the Lord, it all happens for us. It is given to us freely. As the Lord brings his forgiveness to us, he works into us that reconciliation that we might be reconciled to him because he is reconciled to us. That he is drawn near to us, that we are enabled to draw near to him. And in that reconciliation, out of it flows that great restoration of new life, of new being of being brought back into our callings before the Lord to love him and to serve him and to rejoice in him. The Lord works that in us by revealing himself to us through his word and through his sacrament, calling us evermore to himself. Because he is the Lord of all of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Lord of redemption and salvation for us. And so here in this passage we hear 
of that restoration. Despite being in a liminal place, in an in-between place, the Lord comes and reveals himself and opens the eyes of Peter to a new life, to a restoration, to go out and to tend the sheep and to feed them, to follow the Lord wherever he leads. And over in Revelation 5, we see the results of that in John's vision. We hear of the martyrs. We hear of the people crying out and praising the Lord. We hear of them crying out and looking to that lamb that was slain, who is bringing all things together, who is bringing healing and drawing people from every tribe to himself through his people. We hear of the one who is worthy to break open the scroll because he has ransomed people for himself. We see the completion of Peter and the other disciples' work. We see the completion of our work here in Revelation 5. As the Lord is praised, as Jesus himself is praised as the one who is the center of it all, the one who has made a kingdom for himself of priests, who has made a kingdom of kings that will rule the earth. Because Jesus brings to us in our in-between places himself. And so may we this day receive Jesus himself in the midst of this worship. May we go out and receive him in the midst of our everyday lives. May we receive him as we draw near in prayer and in scripture reading. May we know his forgiveness and reconciliation and his restoration in the midst of that in-between place we find ourselves in so often. That we can be fed and cared for in the midst of all of that. So may you know that blessing of restoration from the Lord as you draw near, knowing that as you draw near, He is already there to be drawn near to. And you can find rest in who He is and what He has done for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.